Okay, have you ever wondered what it's like to die? Or, or have you ever wondered what happens when you die or, or where you go? How long does it take you to leave your body? Is it a pleasant or painful experience? And is it like they say um, in the different religions? Is, is there an afterlife? And what religion do you believe? And do you even believe in something after death? It, all these questions that we have um, I know I certainly have questions like this, um, and today my guest is going to shed some light on some of these questions with his shocking true life story. My guest is Tony Sicoria. He is an orthopedic surgeon, and he was struck by lightning on August 21st of 1994, and it changed his life completely. Tony Sicoria, thank you so much for coming on my show. How are you? Good, thanks. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, of course. Okay, you have an amazing story. It's I think it's something that people are just, no pun intended, but shocked to know that I think that somebody could get hit by lightning and survive. Yeah, it, it, um, I mean, if you look at the statistics, they're not great. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I have looked at all of those sorts of things because of often wondered, like, how freak of an accident was this? I feel very fortunate um, that I did survive. Tell me about the story. Tell me about that day in 1994. Sure. Um, in, on that particular day, we're having a communal birthday party. My wife's family had four or five people that all had birthdays in August. Mm-hmm. And rather than trying to get individual parties, they would have one collective party. Mm-hmm. And so there were about 25 people there with little kids and adults. And we were at a pavilion. It was a lakeside pavilion at a place called Sleepy Hollow Lake, mm-hmm. uh, which is just south of Albany, New York. And we were there, you know, getting everything all set up. And I was charged with being the guy running the barbecue. So I was outside and I was getting all the food barbecued, and um, I wasn't paying attention to what the weather was doing. It started out as a beautiful day, but somewhere along the line, it had gotten cloudy, and the storm cloud had had brewed up over the lake, and I remember just visually seeing it and just discounting it. I went around to the front of the pavilion, um, so the pavilion, the way it's constructed is that most of all the activities are up on the second floor and underneath um, that floor is where the parking is and, and there's a staircase going up and right next to the staircase is a payphone. So I was going to call my mom to check on her and I went over to the payphone and I entered in the numbers and the phone rang five, six, seven times and she didn't answer. So I thought, okay, I'll call back later. And as I started to take the phone away from my face, the building got hit by lightning and I heard a loud crack mm-hmm. and I saw this big flash of light come out of the phone and it hit me in the face. Oh. And when it did, it threw me back like a rag doll. Oh my God. And as I was going backwards, suddenly I had, I had this really strange sensation of moving forwards and I was absolutely confused. And I remember standing there, and I'm, I'm looking around, and I see the phone dangling, and I'm trying to make sense out of it, and, and it, nothing made sense. Yeah. 
And I remembered every single millisecond of what had happened. I saw the flash of light. I knew I'd been hit. Yeah. And now I'm just, and I'm, and I had that really strange sensation of moving forward. And, and now I'm just standing here. And all of a sudden I hear my mother-in-law screaming. She's at the top of the stairs and she's running down the stairs right at me. And I'm thinking, this can't be good. And it's, but I had the sensation that she wasn't looking at me mm. and it was like, she was just looking right through me. And I, and I'm standing there and she got down to the bottom of the stairs and she ran to her left. And so I turned to my right to follow her. And when I turned around to look where she was going, I was confronted with myself on the ground. <gasps> and I remember thinking out loud to myself, Oh shit, I'm dead. Oh, yeah. Oh my gosh. And I walked over to the body mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm listening to everything that's going on. I'm watching the people. And there was a, a lady who was standing behind me about 10 feet away waiting to use the phone. She was standing there with her teenage daughter. And I had made note of the fact that they were there beforehand. When I was standing there, I'm, I'm watching this and she starts to get down to do CPR and I'm trying to talk to them, and I can hear them, I can see them, but nobody can hear or see me. And and I was as I'm standing there, suddenly I realize that oh my god, I'm thinking just like I normally would. I'm conscious. Wow. My consciousness is is with me. It's not there on the ground. Wow. And at that point, I, I thought, okay, well, there's no point in staying here because nobody can hear me or see me. So I'm going to go check on my family who was up on the next floor up. So I start to walk up the stairs. I turned around and walked away and I'm starting to walk up the stairs. And as I'm walking up the stairs, I'm looking down at the stairs so I don't trip. Right. It's kind of a thing that I would normally do. Right. And, and as I'm walking up the stairs, I get to about the third step and I see that my legs are starting to dissolve. And I'm thinking, Whoa, this is getting crazy. And by the time I got up to the top of the stairs, I had lost all form and I was just this ball of energy. And I, the stairs go up to the left, but I didn't bother following the stairs. I just went through the wall. I passed directly over my wife's head. Um, When I went through the wall, she was sitting on a chair painting children's faces. And I had made a specific note of of where the kids were and, and what position they were standing in as I passed over them and then I passed out through the roof. And when I got outside, things really started to get interesting because it, it was like I had just fallen into an incredible flow. Can you imagine a river of pure positive energy? Wow. Okay. And, and when I fell into this, it wasn't like I fell into it. I actually, when I, when I just, and he left the building and I was suddenly in it and I'm in this river of pure positive energy and there's absolutely nothing but peace and love in this energy. Wow. And I was, I was really struck by it. And as I looked at it, it, it had this bluish white light color to it. And it reminded me of when I was a kid swimming in crystal clear streams, I would be on the bottom looking up and I would see the light coming through the water and it reminded me of that and then as I'm 
as I'm looking around, I'm, I'm trying to make sense of what I'm seeing and, and feeling. This energy is unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. And as I looked around, I could see that this energy, the flow of this energy was what was flowing through everything and is what made up everything. And it made me think, is this the God energy? And I thought, okay, well, whatever this energy is, it is clearly involved with the way everything is composed and made. And I could actually see the waves of energy. And it reminded me of a, of a sine wave, and I couldn't tell what the frequency of it was, but it, it was slow enough for me to see it. I was thinking, God, I can measure this. And I'm, and, but I'm just overwhelmed with the incredible sense of love and peace in this energy. And I could feel that I was going someplace. It was, you know, when you drop into a river, you flow with it. I could feel that sense of traveling. And it had speed and direction. I, I don't, didn't know where I was going, but I could tell I was going in a direction. And then right about the time I realized that this is the greatest thing that could ever happen to somebody. And suddenly it's like somebody flipped a switch and I was back. And I was on the ground and, and geez, it hurt. Oh. You know, where the lightning hit me in the face and went out my foot, felt like somebody had stuck hot pokers in both places. Mm. And... I knew I was still unconscious, but I wasn't able to move, but I could also tell that they had stopped CPR, so I must have, my heart must have started started beating, and I was back. Yeah. And and after, you know, it seemed like five minutes took me to actually be able to open my eyes, and I opened my eyes, and I couldn't focus on anything, and the girl who was doing CPR was just sitting, you know, kneeling next to me. And I looked at her and I said, and I wanted to say, you know, thanks for saving my life. But the only thing that came out was, it's okay, I'm a doctor. And and I thought, well, that was a really stupid ass thing to say. (laughs) And at at that point, I realized, okay, I'm not thinking very clearly. So I'm just going to shut up. Wow. And, uh, and she just kind of laughed and said, well, you weren't a moment ago. Wow. And I, and I thought, oh, God. <sighs> so, you know, at that point, I was able to, to sit up with some help. Mm-hmm. And the police, the police came and they wanted to call an ambulance. And I said, don't bother. You know, it, it's, it's kind of a, a moot point at this, at this point in time. Because when you get struck by lightning, you're either alive or dead. There's not much in between. Right. And... At least that was my thinking at the time, and yeah. you know that was that was not good thinking either. I should have gone to the hospital, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. So I had my family, you know, rallied around, and they took me home. And I saw my cardiologist and my neurologist when I got home, and they said, "Well, you know, you, you've you've already proven the point; you're alive. So everything else looks like it's okay." It took about a week or so. To, for me to be able to go back to work because you know my 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 brain was fuzzy, yeah, and I couldn't remember names of of people and some things. You know, I could look right at you and know that I knew who you were, mm-hmm. but damn, if I could find your name in that file anywhere. Oh wow! Like and, even people you knew, and, like yeah, on a daily yeah, basis. People, you know, 
people that I knew on a regular basis. And, right. and it's like, I knew that I knew them and, but I could not find their name. And I thought, okay, well, we'll see what happens with this. So, you know, after about a week, all of that went away. And then I was, I was mystified because, okay, you don't get struck by lightning and survive and, and it just be random. There's got to, you know, there has to be some reason for all this. And, and I have no idea what it is. Did you remember all of this even right away? Like, yeah. or, or did it come back to you? Like the memory of, um, it, it was, most of it was, was there right away. And then the more I thought about it and the more I remembered, I you know went back to work, but a couple of weeks after that, I started to have this insatiable desire to hear classical piano music, which was a big departure for me because I was a kid of the sixties and <laughs> there really was no room for right. That for wasn't classical music. It, that wasn't your thing. Yeah. yeah, it was all rock and roll. Um, you know, I did. My mom had made me take piano lessons when I was seven years old um, mm. for a year, and and I dutifully did that, but and promptly forgot it because I had no desire to do it. And, yeah. And, you know, baseball and football and fishing were more important. So, mm. you know, that was, that was where I put all my energy. And so music was at the bottom of the totem pole. And then, so I had this incredible desire and then that just got worse and worse. And finally, to the point where I, I actually drove to Albany, which was an hour away, the capital, and to buy some classical piano music on CD because there was no place local that had anything like that. So, what you just wanted and, to listen to it? That was in your like well, you just it, had to hear it. Yeah, and you know, at that point, that was that was the extent of it. Okay. Um, so I, I I got to the music store, and when I walked in. There was, there was a CD that literally jumped out of the shelves into my hand, and it was Vladimir Ashkenazi playing his favorite Chopin. Mm. And I, I bought the CD, and I took it home, and I listened to it, and then I started listening to it nonstop. I made everybody else listen to it, <laughs> and then I'm sure they were they were pretty sick of it. Oh. And at that point, I you know I realized that okay, listening to this music is not going to be enough. Mm-hmm. So I magically thought that, well, I can figure this out. So I order all of the sheet music on the CD. And, of course, when it gets here, I look at it and I just kind of laugh to myself because I, I can't read it and I have no idea what, what to do next. And I did not have a piano, which was the other crazy huh. thing. So I'm thinking, okay, what do I do now? And the next day, our babysitter and says, you know, I have, I'm moving and I've got this old upright piano that I need to store for a year. Could I store it at your house? No way. And <gasps> yeah, and, and it's like, okay, this is getting weird. Wow. By the minute she brings this piano over and I think, well, now I have a piano and I have a desire. So I went to the store and I bought some books on how to learn how to play. Mm-hmm. And I tried to teach myself how to, how to play the music. And I, started working on on doing that one day my daughter's best friend was over and her mom came to pick her up and she heard me trying to trying to play something on the piano and 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 she says what are you doing and I said well I'm trying to learn this piece of music but I can't get the hands to line up 
and she looked at the music, and she's a violinist, an accomplished violinist, mm-hmm. and she said, they're not supposed to. And I said, why would somebody write music where the hands don't line up? And she said, because it's a polyrhythm. And I hmm. said, what's, what's that? And she said, I'm not even going to try to explain this to you. She said, you need to get a teacher. Mm-hmm. And she gave me the name of Sandy McCain, who was the, who was the chair of music. She was Juilliard trained. You know, I gave her a call and she explained this whole nonsense to her and, and asked her if she would take on an older student. We would meet once a week for two hours, um, which was a crazy time because where my piano lesson was from five, five o'clock to seven o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I mean, my routine was I got up at four and I would practice um, from the time I was ready to, to, you know, got dressed and showered and everything. So it was, you know, 4.30, quarter to five, and I would practice until I had to go to work at, at seven o'clock. And I did that every day. I would work my 12 hours and I would come home and I would, um, I would spend some time with the kids and my family, um, but not much time, unfortunately. Then I would start working on the piano and I would work till, till midnight wow. until I couldn't even see straight. And I did this every day, every day, every day. And unfortunately there were, you know, there were consequences to that. You know, I, I felt like I didn't, spend as much time with my, my family as I should have. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I felt like I was absent for a lot of things. And, um, and then fortunately my marriage suffered as a result of it as well. You know, and I had come to the conclusion, my own warped sense of thinking that the music was the only reason I was allowed to survive, but I didn't know why. Mm. And then within a, within a, a couple of months of, of all of this stuff happening, I have a dream. And in this dream, it was like an out-of-body experience. I'm walking out onto a stage, and I'm walking toward myself. And my actual form is out on the concert stage. I'm playing to a concert hall, and I'm listening to this music as I'm walking out toward myself. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is not somebody else's music. This is mine. And I'm thinking, so I, I'm listening to the music. I walk up and I stand behind myself and I'm watching me play it. And I'm looking at the theater and making notes about what the theater looks like. And the end of the music had this loud crashing ending and it woke me up. I got up and it's about 3.15 in the morning. And I, I stood up next to the bed and I, I walked out to the piano and I was trying to plunk out some of what I had heard, but I had no idea how to play or write. So it was kind of a moot point. And at that point I realized I didn't go back to bed. <laughs> so I went back to bed and then, but after that, every time I sat down at the piano to, to try to practice, the music would start playing in my head. It, it was like a, a spoiled two-year-old. If I didn't spend time with it every day, it would start intruding into all of my other time. Wow. And it would start playing in my head when I was trying to do other things. You know, I kept working on, on learning and, and working with my teacher. And and then one day I had um, started going to a piano camp for adults in Bennington, Vermont, called the Sonata. When I went there, I you know, I was with a, 
the whole camp is, is all adult pianists to a varying degrees of proficiency who are there because they love to play. And so I got to spend some time, and I started that in 2002. And in 2006, a year that I went, I had an, an extraordinary meeting. The, uh, the, the owner's sister was there, Erica Vanderlyn Kleidner. Erica uh, was the number one salesperson for Steinway in New York City. Oh. And, and she, she, was the, she was also a concert pianist. And so she had brought a bunch of pianos in for people to, to play on, and she had just switched companies from Steinway to Bosendorf. And so she brought in a bunch of Bosendorf pianos for people to play. And we got talking about this whole lightning story, and, and at the end of our talk, she said, you know, there's only one person that can tell this story, and that's Oliver Sacks. And at the time, I didn't know who Oliver Sacks was other than to know he wrote the book Awakenings, mm-hmm. and and I thought, well, it's, you know, it was an interesting meeting, and and I didn't think anything more of it. And then I get a call from Oliver Sacks, and Oliver says, you know, I've I've heard about this crazy story about you and the lightning, and was wondering if I could include you in my group of patients who've had weird things like this that have happened. And he asked me to come down for an interview, and I said, sure. So I, I made the trek down to New York City, and I spent literally the, the entire day with Oliver Sacks, which was one of the high points of my life. And so we, we talked about all this sort of stuff. And then at the end of the night, we were standing in the doorway and, and saying goodbye, and he he looks me right in the eye and he says, you know, the music from the dream went through an awful lot of trouble to get here. The least you can do is write it. I, I was so overwhelmed by what he said that when I got home, my first thing I did was I bought a, a music writing program called Sibelius. And so I, I bought this program and I started, um, I started trying to write down everything that I'd heard in the dream. And over the course of, of the first few years I had tried to write down little snippets of it. So I got all these little snippets together and I started piecing it into one piece. And I always had, you know, the, the absolute memory of, of that music was so ingrained into my brain that, you know, I had an internal control. So I, I, when I would try to write something, I could compare it to the tape that was running in my head. And it was either I either had it right or I didn't. And my teacher was very helpful as well because you know I would write something and I and I would play it, and she would she'd say, "You didn't play what you wrote." And I said, "What do you mean?" She said, "Let me play you what you wrote." And I would you know she would play it for me, and I'm going, "Oh my God, that's not it." And she said, "She said I know that's my point." It took me actually seven months of of working every day, every free minute I had, I spent on this writing the music. So the next year in 2007, I wanted to play the music for my piano group that I would meet in May of, of 2007. And while I was there, I did play the, the piece of music I call it the Lightning Sonata. It's a three movement fantasy. So I played the music for the group, which was well received. And then, while I was there, 
I got a call from Oliver Sacks and Oliver said, you know, I was wondering if I could use your story in my book, Musical Filial, which is going to be coming out later this year. And I thought, sure. He said, good, because chapter one is going to be in the New Yorker magazine, July 23rd. Wow. And I wanted to give, I wanted to give you some warning. And I said, oh, my God. Okay. So Oliver took it out of the closet, which is where it was, Uh and just kind of threw it out on the stage. Once the New Yorker came out, the phone started ringing off the hook. And initially, um, I'd gotten a call from Carlton Clay, who was the head of music at State University in New York. And Carlton called me and said, he said, geez, you know, we're getting an awful lot of questions about this music. He said, would you consider teaching a class? And I thought, yeah, it'd be kind of fun. And the next week he calls back and he goes, you know, it's getting kind of crazy over here about this music. So we're wondering if you would, if you would play for the class. Oh. And, I, and at that point I said, sure. You know, that would be easy. And then two weeks later he calls back and he goes, geez, you know, we're getting, we're getting calls from all over the place would you consider doing a formal concert at the Performing Arts Center? And I said, I have no idea how to do that. I said, I, I said I've never played in front of anybody but a, few, but a few friends. I have no idea how to do it, and I, I haven't memorized the music even though I wrote it. And he said, yeah, it'll be fine. And I'm like, yeah, I should have I run when I heard that. <laughs> That's scary. Yeah, and, and and when when the reality of what I had committed myself to do it sunk in, I I called my teacher and I said, Jesus, what do I do now? Yeah, and she said, Well, we're going to have to spend a lot of time to get you ready for this. So we started going up to the Performing Arts Center, and you know, three four times a week. And we'd spend hours, you know, Practicing starting there. from walk. Yeah, just you know, walking onto the stage. Mm-hmm. How do you know? How do you do this? How do you do that? And and then she would sit up there in the ble- top of the bleachers, and she'd go, "I can't hear you." <laughs> I'm like, oh, Jesus! So you, you became you know, a performer. It was, it was crazy because by the time the concert came, there were three television crews: the BBC One. Granada Media and from England and then German National Television. And I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> so th- there were three television crews that are filming this whole thing. You know, it was just, it was surreal. It really was. I, you know, I, I somehow managed to, um, I talked about my lightning experience mm-hmm. um, and I talked about each piece of music and and kind of the context of where it came from. Once you got all this music out and you finally wrote it and performed it, did that obsession, as you said, did that kind of go away or is it still there? Oh, it's still there. I mean, I get music continues to come to me. New music? Um, and Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've done, uh, I've done a bunch of different things. I, I did a, a concerto for piano and orchestra that I performed in 2011 for the Piccolo Spoleto extravaganza that's in Charleston, South Carolina each year. And I've 
you know, written a bunch of other stuff that I haven't, haven't completed, but it still comes. Wow. So, you know, there's a, there's a, I have an open channel, I call it, mm-hmm. um, that I'm able to tie into where the music comes from. And, and that's not a, a foreign concept because all of the, all of the great composers talk about where their music came from. And, you know, Mozart was probably most vocal about it. He would just say it comes from heaven. He would, he would receive entire pieces of music just ready to take to concert hall. When you say like it comes to you and it, it comes from heaven, do you think that, um, that music is, is tied to energy? Everything is energy. We're all energy. We're all interconnected by the same energy. It all flows together. I mean, it's, you know, I gave a talk at the International Association for Near-Death Studies last month. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that I talked about was the fact that we don't have a, a good explanation of, of how all this stuff works. One of our more enlightened research areas is quantum physics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and it's, a, it's a word that just frightens most people away. But there's been some great experiments and studies that have been done about the reality that we live in. If you had tried to explain all this to me without me having ever had the experience of going through it myself, mm-hmm. I would have a hard time understanding it. Yeah. But having been through it, you know, it changes the way you look at everything. Was there, is there anything that you wish people would know that it's hard to believe maybe or, or hard, like, can you put something sure. into words? I mean, Go ahead. One, I think one of the first things that I realized and is probably one of the most profound things that I came away with is that consciousness survives death. Mm. So whoever we are, we always are. And that was the thing that I realized when I was standing there looking at my body and my mind is racing mm. and I'm thinking exactly the way that I normally would and even thinking in the vernacular that I would normally think. And I realized that whoever we are, we always are. And the body is nothing but a shell that, that this spirit or the soul or whatever you want to call it lives in for this period of time that we're here. Do you think maybe there's some medical correlation to where because your brain was still alive, you could still think and like maybe astro project or something? I don't know if, that, if that's even a real thing, but I've heard about it. What are your thoughts yeah, on that? I mean, this, there, there are lots of, of people in science that think that a near-death experience is nothing more than a dying brain. Mm. Um, but I, I think one of the best examples that there is in the scientific literature of, of why that's not true um, is, a, is a case from this lady named Pam Reynolds. Mm-hmm. Pam Reynolds was a famous case because she had an a aneurysm at the base of her brain that she was going to have surgery on to remove the aneurysm. Mm-hmm. And she was going to have surgery by a guy named Robert Spetzler 
who was in Phoenix, Arizona, at the Barrows Neurologic Institute. He's a neurosurgeon. He had pioneered this this new technique called standstill. And what they did was they would stop your heart, put you on cardiac bypass. They would lower your body temperature to 60 degrees. They would stop your brain completely. They would give you medicines that your brain, and they monitored this. And actually three separate forms, they monitored it. And so this lady is cardiac dead, brain dead. Her Mm -hmm. brain waves are zero. Mm -hmm. And during the operation, she pops out of her body and she goes up and she to the ceiling and she's observing all of the things in the room. She makes careful note of where the instruments are, what they sound like and what people are saying. And after the surgery, and, and she also went through the tunnel and, you know, she, there was a, there's a lot to the whole story. But mm-hmm. the important thing was that she's monitored brain dead in the recovery room. She wakes up and she starts telling everybody about all these crazy things that she saw and heard, including specifically what the thoracic surgeon who had put the lady on, on bypass, um, she went, the, the surgeon had gone to one leg and the femoral artery was too small. And she said to Dr. Spetzler, I'm sorry, I have to open the other leg. This one's too small. And she then exposed the other femoral artery. And there's no way that this patient could have heard those things. Right. And, and so she's monitored brain dead, yet she heard conversations. She was able to describe the position of all the tables, where the people were, and what was being done. She described in detail some of the instruments. And then at the end of the surgery, when the residents were closing up the wounds, the residents put on some music called the Hotel California's, um, it was a, the name of the song was Hotel California by the Eagles. Mm-hmm. And it was one line, it was one line in there that she hated. And that line was, you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. Mm-hmm. And she was angry about that because she had wanted to go toward the light that she saw in the tunnel. Wow. And her family, there were family members in the tunnel who were with her that had previously died and they would not let her go toward the light. They kept turning around and forcing her to go back. And she was angry about it. Wow. And, and so here's the case where you have someone who's had a real near death and out of body experience, but it was monitored. Mm. And I think that's one of the strongest pieces of evidence that there is that this is real. Yeah, because there's no this way. Is, this, is, <laughs> this is not a hallucination. Yeah. So from this experience, do you believe Do you believe that there is a heaven or a hell? I believe that we go to someplace, but I don't think it's heaven or hell. Uh, there is a place that we go where we review what has transpired in this life and and at some point we have to make a decision whether to come back or to ascend to the next level of what we would call our ascension pyramid. So the point from what I have read and, and learned was that you have to go through this evolution to become 
pure enough to become one with source. Right. And you never fully got there because you, did, did you make the choice? Like, did, because from your story, no, it sounded pissed. like you, you were what? Yeah, I was, I was pissed. You were I didn't pissed. want to come back. The, I, you know, the was, nurse behind you brought you back with CPR. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and when I think about what's the probability of all of these things happening to make sure that I didn't completely leave this world, it's crazy. A lightning bolt, you know, normally when it hits something, it gets fried. Yeah. And so it, it hit the building and lost enough of its amperage that when it got to me, it had weakened enough to stop my heart, but not enough to cook me. <laughs> yeah. And, and then to be sure that there were no mistakes, whoever was controlling this whole event made sure that there was a nurse standing there just in case. So, you know, it's like, okay, uh, I why? get the point. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I mean, it's, you know, to me, it's, and it's, there's no question that this was orchestrated. Do you think it was whom? a? I have no idea. Do you think it was a lesson for you? Oh, absolutely. What do you think the lesson was? I don't know. <laughs> I've never, you know, I, as many things as I've thought about and times that I've thought about this, you know, I I don't know what the final point of all of it is, and I don't think I've reached the final point of it yet. You know, I'm still, I'm still evolving and I'm still going through this and, you know, I'm, I'm in the process of writing a book about it and, and I've read enormous volumes of information that I'm, and I'm trying to collate into this. And I think that that's part of, part of what it is that I was supposed to do. It's to disseminate the fact that, hey, guys, there's more to what you see than you really believe. So being a doctor and being a scientific man, um, have you had any negative feedback from this? No, I, you know, I, my people that know me, you know, they know exactly the way I think and, and how I believe about this stuff. I haven't been exactly quiet about it. Yeah. You know, back in the 90s, it was not acceptable to, to talk about this sort of stuff. And you worried that, you know, I start talking about this, somebody's going to call a state and have my license revoked. <laughs> right. Um, and that, that's not a trivial concern. Yeah. That was a real concern. So I keep thinking about when you got brought back, and I want to kind of go back to that real quick. So when you said you were pissed when you got brought back, um, what? I can imagine because you said you were in such a peaceful place and, you know, the light and um, I was watching some of your previous interviews and you were happy and you knew your kids would be okay and you were ready to make that journey wherever, wherever next was. And, um, yeah. and, and then you, boom, you're back in. And so my question is, have you met her again? And second... Are you mad at her? <laughs> you know, I I tried a number of years afterwards. I tried to go back. I went back to the place and I wanted to see if they had a file mm -hmm. because I was trying to find out her name. 
and I was not able to, they couldn't find the files. It was a different, the, the, the company had been sold. And so the, the, the files that were used for the security folks were, were someplace else. And they, you know, and this went on for a period of weeks that I tried to get that and unfortunately was not able to. Hmm. So, so how'd you know she was, was a nurse? Um, because there, there was a housing development that was accompanied with this, um, this pavilion and this lake. Mm-hmm. And she lived there. Uh, my brother-in-law lived there. And he was the one that told me that um, who she was and, and what she did. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I, I was not able to come up with a, with a specific name. So are you still mad at her? <laughs> no, you know I I'm I'm eternally grateful. Yeah. That that she was there, and I'm sure that she was doing exactly what she was supposed to do. I'm sure that that was part of her task in in this life was to was to be there for this moment, mm-hmm. and she was. When you when when she brought you back, and you said you were pissed, did you have any depression after that? You know, I did. Um, I had, I did have some depression, but it was, it was, it was a culmination of not being able to understand what had happened, why it happened and, and what was the meaning of it. I mean, it, you know, I was more really possessed by the music. I was so obsessed with being able to do that, that it kind of carried me through all those other feelings. And, and I, I did find that the, the scientific um, explanation I was trying to find before was John Bell um, was the guy that came up with the, this experiment where you he took um, two, two electrons from a single molecule and he, and he separated them mm-hmm. and the electrons have this this unusual ability to, when they're paired one spins one way and one spins the other if oh. you separate them um no matter how far you separate them, what you do to one, the other one immediately responds. So if you force force one electron to spin one way, the other one is going to automatically spin the other. Even if they're separated by light years, they did this experiment. And, and what they found is that everything is connected on a subatomic level. And that gives a lot of credence to why you know, animals can sense things at a distance. You have a dog that, you know, you you live at the end of a, a, a dirt road and in the middle of the night somebody's banging at your door and your dog goes absolutely crazy mm-hmm. and and you're almost afraid of the dog um, because there's, there's such a violent reaction. The dog senses that there's something bad on the other side of that door. And how does it do it? And, and we've, anybody who's had a pet knows that feeling. And, and animals in, everywhere have that sense of whether something is good or bad. And that tells us that everything is connected. And this was one of the first real scientific studies that showed that everything is connected. Do you think there's a part of your brain that was awoken with the electrical shock? 
Yes. Yeah. And short answer. Mm-hmm. Um, Oliver Sacks, in one of our discussions, he said, you know, somehow your brain has been rewired mm-hmm. and you have access to parts that you didn't have before. And, and one of the things that has happened to me since all of this stuff has happened is I was contacted by Daryl Treefer. Daryl is a, a physician who's a specialist in savants. And, and he had a group of people that he wanted me to become part of. And they were all people like me who had been normal and had some extraordinary event happen to them. Either they got hit in the head, mm-hmm. they, they had a tumor removed, they had surgery, any number of things. But out of it, they all came back with something they didn't have before. Hmm. And so some people could do, you know, massive math calculations um, in their head instantaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, other people could tell you the date. Um, if you said, you know, what was, you know, September 1st, 1936, they would tell you what date it was instantly. You know, some people began having artistic abilities that they didn't have, mm-hmm. whether it be in, in drawing or, um, you know, carving statues, one thing or another. So, you know, this is, I found that there was this, there's a whole population of people like me who've had some extraordinary thing happen and you have to look at this and say, okay, if it can happen this many times by some strange circumstance, there must be a way to do it without the strange circumstance. I believe that we can, we just don't know how. Do you think that we ever will? Like, do you think that we ever will feel comfortable enough to do these experiments? You know, I think that, you know, the original thought was was not a bad thought. That applying a certain amount of electricity can can make the circuits reset, which is I think what they were what they were hoping for. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there's more there's more to it, and I don't think that it it's ever been studied, um, and and it probably will never be studied because it would it's it looks it's bad. <laughs> probably borderline eth- unethical yeah. to to do that to somebody's brain willfully. And it's not just electricity. There, there's something about the trauma that's involved mm. um, that can also do it. So, you know, I don't think that there's really a, a great place for, you know, electrical stimulation of the brain in terms of, you know, trying to, to reset somebody's circuits. And or if open up, mental, yeah. Yeah, yeah m- mental illness. Um, but I do think that there is a whole technology that we are unaware of at this yeah. point that involves electrical stimulation of certain areas of the brain that can open it and open up the genetic memory mm. um, of things that we had known somewhere in our genetic history how to do. So now that the dust has settled kind of from this whole you know, crazy experience and, and this whole story. Um, what does present day look like for you? Um, well, I, I still work part-time in, 
in my profession. Um, but besides that, I'm I'm working on new music that I've been writing. I'm working on the book that uh, that I had already mentioned, mm-hmm. um, and I you know and I give I give lectures and talks. You know, I don't do it for pay. Um, I do it for the love of topic. Yeah, that is very obvious to see, and um, it's wonderful how you're willing to share your story. Um, I did want to ask you some <laughs> some silly questions that um, that people have asked me to ask you. So uh, social media uh, inquires about these things. Here we go. Do you worry about lightning storms to this day? Yeah. You do? Yep, I do. I do. If, um, one of the things that I'm very sensitive to is that there is a charge buildup in the earth mm-hmm. wherever lightning is being attracted to. And I can feel it. Mm-hmm. And it's terrifying. Mm. Um, you can feel it because, you, yeah, I can feel the, I can feel the, the static charge build up around me. Wow, um, feel the build up in the earth, and and that's the way lightning works. Um, it it goes to a specific point for a reason, and that specific point has a corresponding charge attraction. And so when I feel that, I run. Yeah. Um, and so now, you know, if it's lightning out, you know, I would just soon stay inside. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because... Chi- Go ahead. I'm a chicken. <laughs> well, of course you are. Oh, my gosh. Look what happened. Um, it's funny. I, You know, I live in California. And last night, for the first time in I don't know how long, we you had... a had- storm. Yeah. My daughter was flying from here to L.A. Uh-huh. And, and they were unable to land. Yeah. I thought there was a tidal wave coming. I was like, this is it. I'm good. I'm, this is the end. It was so strong. There's a statistic that says, well, there's, not a, there's a saying that says lightning doesn't strike the same place twice. It's like, that's a lie. That is such a lie. <laughs> I, I think I read that it's actually more likely, isn't it? I had I had always heard that it would never strike in the same place twice, but then I started reading more about it, and and you know it will it will strike the same place many times. Yeah, because it's like positively um, charged or something. Yeah, oh. yeah. There's something that happens to it that you know the pathway is somehow there's less resistance to go the same pathway. Ah, that makes sense. Do you get static shocked more than most people? Yes. You do? And, and I and I have a problem with electronics. Really? Um, if, I, if I hold my finger too close to uh, the keypad uh, on my phone, it will... It'll it'll just do things. It'll do something I didn't want it to do. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I so and that's and that's actually a common finding for people who who've had lightning strikes or who've even had near death experiences. Wow. Well, I'll tell you what. I, I know that um, that you're working on a book right now. Do you have a name for the book yet? I think I'm going to call it the greatest hoax of all time. 
<laughs> what which made is you? which is the, the true nature of man. Huh. You know, the biggest thing um, I realized that you know, organized religion does nothing except try to control people, and that you know, it's because of this I've become much more spiritual, um, but not religious. And and I think that that's not just true for myself, but I think for most people that have had a near death experience and have gone through this sort of thing. You know, I think that's that's very impactful, and um, and I appreciate you. Um, being so honest and open and um, um, I, I'd love to, to stay in touch with you, Tony. I think you're a fascinating person and um, and I saw that you rode a, uh, you ride a motorcycle. Yep. So I, uh, I, I used to ride all the time. I, I, oh my gosh. I have stopped because my, my family has lost trust in my ability to not be <laughs> crash and burn so okay i did i did hear that you have crashed on this and that was very scary for you and your family and also you fell into an alligator pit yeah i (laughs) I have done that too (laughs) you are not meant to go anywhere right now no no that's pretty clear oh my god there is something (laughs) you are definitely meant to do Oh man! Yeah. Well, God has a sense of humor. <laughs> I think he, I think he keeps me around here just for the entertainment. <laughs> well, you have definitely entertained me and um, and the listeners here. So thank you so much for telling your story and spending the time with me. You're welcome, Nikki, and thank you. I appreciate your help and uh, and the time you spent. <laughs>